Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homie, and I'm your host, and I'm honored by your wise decision once again to tune in and invest in yourself today. The Business Creators Radio Show goes where you go. You may occasionally hear ambient noise in the background, the occasional bird chirping, the car driving by, the conversation from a nearby table in a cafe. We go where you have the mastermind moments and the aha experiences that move you closer to serving from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. That doesn't happen in an office. That doesn't happen in some soundproof, sterile Hollywood quality studio. It happens when you get out there in the field. And you, you find it. You let it find you. Today, we broadcast from my sumptuous living room here in Las Vegas, Nevada, the hottest city in America. And we are going to be discussing why strategic planning is stupid. Okay, not so much, but more why you should take a serious look at the way you've been doing strategic planning. You may want to ditch it, and you may want to make some changes to it. You may also want to look at how to change your focus on in a way that'll maximize your impact and optimize the energy you put into it so that you don't tap yourself and get overwhelmed and burned out. As you can see, we have got a lot of things we're going to cover here. And to guide us on this journey, we have Sarah Olivieri. She's a business coach, strategist, with a passion for helping nonprofit organizations thrive, a number one international bestseller, and a former nonprofit executive director who now helps nonprofit teams as CEO and founder of her company, Pivot Ground. Her impact method is a framework that helps nonprofits simplify their operations, build aligned teams, and make a bigger impact without overwhelm. She has nearly 20 years experience with this. She also co-founded the Open Center for Autism and was the executive director of the Helping Children of War Foundation. She's also a published author who co-wrote Lesson Planning a la carte, integrated planning for students with special needs, and was a featured expert in the international best-selling series, the one thing every mompreneur needs to know. Oh, boy. Sarah Olivieri, come on in. The weather's fine. <laughs> Did I do all that? <laughs> I'm not worthy to be in your presence, and this is my show. <laughs> okay, so, I, so I read off your official bio. First sure. thing I want to know is tell us in your own words a bit about your story and your journey, about what actually brought you to where you are serving from what is very clearly your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Yeah, you know, um, this isn't the story of every entrepreneur, but I think it's the story of a lot of um, maybe mom or women entrepreneurs. I had already started like three businesses before I even applied that label to myself or considered I could be anything like that. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I started working in nonprofits, um, very much running a nonprofit's first conference. And then I was founding a nonprofit before I know it. I've been a first executive director of a newly formed nonprofit. I have also started a for-profit media production company, marketing uh -huh. agency. I've owned uh, an art supply store and cafe, which I then turned into an art uh, into a cafe and co-working space. So I've been around the block a few times, and it was when I was doing running a marketing agency, and I started focusing on nonprofits that I realized that nonprofits mostly couldn't benefit from great marketing because they didn't run very well. And then I started diving into how can I take what I know of nonprofits and what I know about for running a for-profit business and help nonprofits run better. And what I learned was, I mean, first of all, I'm in love with how businesses operate, period. 
But nonprofits are one of the most complex business models you can have. And so it's very exciting, interesting to me personally, but it also means all this stuff actually applies to all businesses. Because if you can do it in a really complex situation, you can do it in an easier situation and it works very well as well. Okay, uh, I have a question for you. First of all, I want to get your thoughts on the phrase I've been saying for years is that there's actually no such thing as a nonprofit. Uh, what there is a such thing as is whether money goes to shareholders or to reinvestment. I see these okay. models are called nonprofits. They may have 501c3 status. I've worked with clients who serve the nonprofit industry, so I have some familiarity. But the theme I see again and again and again is they don't want to lose money. They actually want to take in more money than they put out. Otherwise, they cannot reinvest. They cannot serve their charitable function. They cannot continue to expand and broaden the net that they're able to cast over whatever issue it is they're looking to lasso and make the change that they want to see in the world. Yeah, I mean, if I were to re have my choice of renaming what we call this sector, I would call it the impact first sector. Okay. So, you know, from a legal perspective, right, the reason why you're able to get you know, nonprofit status means you don't have to pay tax on your profits. It certainly doesn't yep. mean you can't have profits. And you're absolutely right. Legally, the trade-off is nobody's allowed to actually own a nonprofit and therefore they can't take part of the profits out. They can't sell part of the profits. You know, they can't sell a share to somebody else, uh -huh. right? So no individual can own a nonprofit. That's the trade-off for not having to pay taxes. But I think where it gets a little different from the for-profit industry is in a for-profit, if you can't make any money or if you're going to not, ex you know, you're going to close or you're going to change your business model and for-profit nonprofits have to make money. It's fuel. It's very important that they reinvest and that they keep making money and that they have money to use, but they may sometimes, they may quite frequently choose activities that put impact at a higher value than profit. So they're balancing yeah. those two in a much more intense way than a for-profit business ever would. Well, cert certainly, I, I, I get that. And part of it is indeed cultural. I was on the board of directors for a nonprofit myself. I was also the president of that same organization. And I had these some of these really crazy ideas, one of which was in fact that the organization should take in more money than it put out. Yeah, I would agree with like, that. They looked at me like I had five heads. Meanwhile, meanwhile, I'm fighting with people who are supposed to be organizing programs who can't even call the venue in a timely fashion to reserve the room. But uh, but they have this big mission. They're going to make a big difference. So I think part of what happens is, candidly, when you get to this place where people uh, feel that they're part of something that's not for profit it's not about corporate greed that they can lose their business sense because after all the kumbaya will make it right yeah you're absolutely right <laughs> and and i think that there is this i was just talking about this yesterday i was leading a retreat for board members and saying you know the nonprofit industry just perpetuates this message of it's supposed to feel hard we're not supposed to have money. We're not supposed to spend very much money. We're not supposed to take any risks. And that actually numbs all these signals that we need as business people, right? When it starts to feel really hard, that should be a signal that something is going wrong. <laughs> if we don't have any money, that should be a signal that something is going wrong. But because yeah. we're always telling nonprofits that they're not supposed to have money and it's supposed to feel hard, they don't receive that warning sign that something's going wrong and it gets worse and worse and worse and can go, you know, very far being terrible. You can have the 25 year old startup nonprofit that's never yes. made it out of startup phase that has, doesn't right. happen in the for-profit world right where i'm headed with this is i really want to know and we'll start broad and we'll bring in the focus wherever our conversation takes us but you say that we should ditch the way we've been doing strategic planning all right what's going on with that <laughs> so in the nonprofit space, and this happens in, in corporate, large corporations as well. Oh, yeah. 
nonprofits are doing, traditionally they've been told to do strategic planning. Kind of every five years is the norm right now. It used to be like 10 years. Some are like, oh, we'll do it every three years. Here and there, there's someone saying, hey, maybe we should look at our strategic plan every year. Um, And I really advocate that one, if there is an industry, a sector in the business world that should be known as the very, 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 very best at innovating, it should be the nonprofit sector. They're solving the world's most complex problems. Therefore, they should be the most innovative. And if you're going to be extremely uh-huh. innovative, you better be agile. You better be great at experimenting. You better be able to turn on a dime. And that means having a very iterative strategic planning process. And so what I teach my clients is in the impact method is a process where we're updating strategic plans every two months. So that's a radical shift from like every 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 two months. Holy hell. I like it, but holy hell. Yeah. Well, you know, originally I looked at the quarterly model, you know, a lot of for-profits kind of run on a quarterly schedule. And I just found that when the rubber meets the road, when you're actually living a quarterly schedule, that last month is always a little fuzzy. You start to feel like, what are my goals again? You know, it just isn't top of mind. And, but two months is always top of mind. You know, eight weeks is easy for your brain to hold on to. Eight months, anything, eight, eight weeks is nothing, by the way. <laughs> yes, right. And we, but you can remember eight weeks. You can remember your goals. You're not gonna, you're not gonna forget it. Eight weeks uh, will be with you that entire eight weeks. Uh, I mean, I mean, uh, as of the time we're having this conversation, we're near the end of August, and it feels like we're still toward the end of June. That's right. It goes so fast. So especially if you've got like kids in school, like, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, yeah, certainly. Or, or if you are that kid, uh, wh- you're hoping back to school never comes. <laughs> yeah, it seems right. to come That's earlier right. and earlier every year. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't really. They just learn to appreciate school even less. And who can blame them? But anyway, <laughs> that's right. My son would totally agree. He hates school. I grew up loving school, but I went to a very fun school. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, same, same, same thing. The educational system did not work out for me. And, uh, and uh, I can, I can tell you, if you could ever collect the biggest group of, of uh, losers and assholes and get stuck in a classroom with them and be abused by them for 12 years, nonstop, somehow they found all of them and assigned them to me. You know, the fun, yeah, the funny thing, the funny thing about, uh, that whole thing and this actually i'm bringing this up for a reason it's i mean it's coincidental we got to here but we do bring it up for a reason is with the education system like if you participate in public education for example and you send your kids to the local school district you have basically you're putting your child or children into an environment where they're arbitrarily assigned a group of peers that they may you know which is my experience be the one group of people in the world that they have the least in common with. Like they have more in common with literally people they've never will meet than they do with this group. And then you expect them to deal with them for 12 years, even if it's a hostile, toxic environment that they can't wait to escape from, which is my case. Now you go into the work world and your classmates are sometimes replaced by employers you go into the nonprofit world and you can have a couple different things in my personal experience, one of which could be it's more that same thing because maybe you become an employee of a nonprofit. You're, it's, it's basically just a job like any other. It just so happens the company has 501c3 or similar status where they don't have shareholders and nobody takes money out as taxable income. On the other hand, when we hear the term nonprofit, it has the connotation of people who volunteer, who all actually want to be there for a reason other than, other than either assigned geography or somebody's got to do it. You get a sense of people who feel they have some sort of personal investment. So even if there's nothing else in common, you all got that one thing in common. You do want to save that particular, that particular genus of whales. 
Yeah. Nonprofits have a huge advantage in hiring because of that. But, you know, all businesses and nonprofits, too, suffer from that educational system you were just describing because the educational system is extremely hierarchical, the kind of command and control structure. And everybody learns that and then they just apply it to the business world. And I teach, you know, another part of the impact method model is teaching an alternative um, way of managing what needs to get done in your organization. And it's, you know, proven again and again that, you know, oligarchy isn't really necessarily the best way to get people to do things. Just, you know, saying you have to do it or I'm going to fire you or penalize you doesn't actually (laughs) motivate people as well as giving them agency and a certain (laughs) level of autonomy and letting them naturally form community, which like humans are hardwired to be community people, right? Yeah. Like- <laughs> There's a reason I'm laughing here, Sarah. There's a reason I'm laughing. It's because uh, here we are in 2022. We've got uh, we've got the uh, great resignation or great realignment or great everybody's changing jobs thing or whatever you want to call it. Then we have the thing where we have the presenteeism. Now, some people are saying that means people are slacking off, and other people are saying they're saying they're saying that means folks are looking at their lives saying, "Wait a minute." I'm getting paid for 40 hours a week and I'm doing this stuff on nights and weekends and I'm and I'm missing my kids ball games and yeah. academic team meets. <laughs> uh-uh. No, 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 no. You pay me for 40 hours, you get 40 hours. Beyond that, pay more. I, in fact, I in fact I even said this to a a client uh, on the on the personal consulting side of my or the uh, private consulting business that I have, which is very limited scope in terms of how many clients I bring in and uh she and we are we're beginning to embark on another project that we're going to be collaborating on and she wanted to know what my bandwidth was and i just said very simply the amount of money you put in determines the amount of bandwidth i have <laughs> so the reason i was laughing is you you say to somebody do it this way or you're fired they say cool fire me oh oh by the way um your competitor just made me a job offer so i was going to quit bye <laughs> right. People aren't standing for it. And the, the the sad irony of it all is the way of running your business that makes people happier is also the way that's been proven to make it more profitable and more effective. Right. So it's a win win if we can let go of this kind of power focused people trying to control people methodology and replace it with something I teach, you know, in nonprofits, we get focused on outcomes. I call it replacing people in charge of people in charge of tasks with people in charge of outcomes. And you don't actually have to like manage people beyond if the outcomes aren't happening, then you got to change stuff up. And if they aren't happening because the people aren't doing their tasks, um, which isn't usually a problem if everybody has input on what should be done and feels like they were heard and valued, then usually people do what the job is, <laughs> unless they're like sick or something totally yeah. reasonable. Cert- certainly. Now, we have a whole bunch of terms, uh, formulas and things that you gave me a list of in the green room that we're going to go through here in the rest of our time together. And for our listeners, this is one of those things where you just kind of want to understand how mastermind conversations really work. They don't necessarily follow syllabus. They go where they go. That's the format of the Business Creators Radio Show. But I do have an observation I want to make for you, particularly when it comes to getting people to do things based on command, command, manage, I think you said it was, or something along those lines. Yeah, people in charge of people in charge of tasks, or command and control. Right, (laughs) right. So in my book, Groundhog Day is an event, not a business strategy, I argue that there are two ways to get people to actually care about deadlines. Number one, when they turn something in, actually act on it, because if they... If they do work for you and you t- they turn it in, they never hear about it again, you can pound the desk about deadlines all you want. But the fact is, is people want to feel that what they're doing is useful and valuable. And if they're not seeing it put, to, put in the marketplace or put to work, they'll find somebody else's deadline to care about. That's number one. Number two, create dependencies. It's very easy to look in the mirror and say, you know, you totally just blew off that entire big project that was supposed to be due to wait do today eh, oh well just have some ice cream will feel better <laughs> you can forgive yourself but if you not doing that caused sarah over there to have her entire itinerary wrecked 
and is going to throw her into the floodlights because now she can't deliver on her piece of the project. Well, then you're just you're just the jerk. So right. yeah. <laughs> I mean, so I mean, we uh, so we can have a broad range of being willing to forgive our own shortcomings, but as far as the level of integrity that most people innately have is even if they themselves are slackers, they don't want to be seen as having let somebody else down. Oh yeah. Such a powerful motivator. Yeah. Now one, now one other thing, and this, you know, we talk about strategic planning and what that gets translated into whether, you know, regardless of where the extra money in the company goes is it comes down to, okay, so what project management system do we use? And you've got a Santa Monday teamwork. Oh, I could go on forever and, every, and everybody listening probably think, oh, but you didn't mention mine. Yeah, whatever. Okay. Here's the point. Selecting project management software. And I want to get your thoughts on this. Oh, exciting. Yes. Yeah. Um. <laughs> unless, unless you want to pay developers $3 million to build something that has this one tiny little thing that you just can't seem to get anywhere else. And supposedly your whole organization is going to come to a stop without, which is never the case, by the way, then you, if you can basically go by these criteria, you'll have picked the right one. Sure. For, it needs to solve what it needs to solve whatever issues in your business or help you manage the projects you have now it needs to anticipate to the best of your ability what needs you're going to have within say the next six months i mean you talk about planning and in in eight week increments that's basically three of those periods Mm -hmm. so still not a lot of time but enough you can hold on to it the third is it needs to effectively deal with asynchronicity asynchronicity of personalities work styles time zones times a day that people work on and on and on and on and allow and allow for the effective management of dependencies to track where a project is and enable people to receive the handoffs of data and the most important thing is it has to be fun for people to use because they don't enjoy it, they're just not going to do it, and they will very quickly put you in a situation where you have a choice of dealing with the fact that they're not going to use your project management system or replacing them, not the system. Yeah, yeah. Got to be fun, or even you're not going to use it. That's right. And I would add, for me personally, um, I need to use the minimum number of tools. So I actually Uh build my strategies in the same tool that I build my project management. And it's the same tool that I have my task list because I I've used two tools. And the result is when I get busy, I don't open the task list. And if I don't open my task Uh list, I don't do my work. (laughs) You're absolutely you're absolutely right about that. Uh, Simplicity, um, limiting the number of tools we use. And a uh, and the other thing is, I have a protocol that I have multiple computers, desktops, laptops, tablets, smartphones, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, for me to be able to use something, it has to be something I can access seamlessly from any of those applications. Which means I could be on my laptop one minute, and then over on my desktop ninety seconds later. And yeah. it would be like I never even moved because I could just save as and go pick up somewhere else. Or if I'm in the middle of a conversation, I could switch from one to the other and I wouldn't even have to say BRB. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I, which is, I agree. And yeah, which, yeah, which is why I don't use uh, Slack and I won't participate in Slack. It's very simple. <laughs> it's very difficult in real time to have that multiplicity. And mm-hmm. the other thing is, is if you log off from it, unlike pretty much every project management software out there, it doesn't send you an email to ping you when something's going on. So you have to uh, you have to install an app on your machine. Now, maybe that's changed, but this was my experience every time I've looked into it. Somebody's wanted me to use Slack. Uh, when I was uh, when I was first starting with Rotary and I had to spend a year on the newbie club, one of the members had the idea, well, let's set up a Slack for our newbie club where we can chat about things and we can work on projects together. I said, dude. Number one, it's Slack. Number two, it won't send me an email. Number three, this is a meeting I reluctantly attend once a week. And every quarter, I'm obligated to volunteer to stand at the door at a social event. I am not making this a workflow. 
<laughs> I love that. You know, I'm actually yeah. not a Slack fan either. Yeah. And I feel like it encourages too much conversation and like that. I'm like, I don't have time to look through all this stuff. I don't want it all connected. I don't want to like a, it's like stream of consciousness is how I feel about it. And I don't need that. I just want to get stuff done. I want less, not more. Well, and I've yeah. used a, a lot of the tools you mentioned. I've used Asana. I've used Teamwork. I've used Trello. Um, some other ones. Um, the tool I use now is Zenkit. Yeah, um, I've heard of it. Yep. And I use that for one very, I've used ClickUp. Um, <laughs> there's, there's one thing that Zenkit does that none of the other tools do. And for that reason, I forgive it all its other weaknesses, which is that you know, in most of those tools, you can have some side of card, right? And the card or item is going to be your task, or maybe that card is the collection of tasks that make a task list. Right. Well, in Zenkit, those cards can also be displayed as a mind map. Yeah. One of the things that I learned over the years in goal setting and strategy building is that having different views to build your plan and then to look at your plan is really, really powerful. And you can then build processes around using views that can uh -huh. really enhance what you're trying to figure out. So for example, like, first of all, let's just go back to basics for a second. Like when we're talking about strategy, people throw that word around like, oh, I'm going to be strategic or what's your strategy? And they misuse the word strategy a lot. They use the word strategy often when they mean tactics, like yeah. things that you're going to do. But strategy is a two-part situation. Strategy right. is goals, things you want to accomplish and tactics or actions that you're going to take, the way you're going to try to achieve that goal. And when you have both goals and ideas about how you're going to achieve that goal, then you have a strategy. Just ideas about achieving things is not a strategy and just goals uh -huh. is not a strategy. And I think, um, and I think part of that comes from command and control, uh, which then radiates into our workplace. Here's an example. You go to a school and you are putting classes that are 46 minutes each that you spend exactly that same amount of time going from subject to subject to subject to subject. You are programmed to learn for the test. Yeah. I've shared on other experiences about how uh, my experience being forced into math classes that I couldn't even handle was to me basically a form of child abuse. And I know that's controversial, but that's how I feel about it. Yeah. And for all the agony that that caused me, to the point where, and where it came from is I was classified as gifted. So it was assumed because I was gifted most things that of course I could do trigonometry and algebra and calculus. And for all the energy I put into something that I was, I was not innately good at, that I hated, that I already knew, whatever my career path was, it wasn't going to be this. <laughs> I was forced to spend 90 to 95% of my entire academic time just trying to pass it while being told about how lazy I am and I need to start mm -hmm. applying myself. Mm -hmm. And I missed out on the joys of the other 95% mm -hmm. of the work yeah. where, okay, yeah, I didn't need to work real hard to get A's and all those other things. Because it's all tactics and no goals. No one was that, saying, you know. I, yeah, nobody told me what, other than you're going to have a job someday where you're going to need to measure triangles and you're going to need to solve for X. Okay, measure for triangles, I'll hire a carpenter, uh, solve for X. That's what I have a CPA for. He loves math. <laughs> you know, you'll appreciate, I'm, I was always very good at math and I started with a very fun math program and I was doing college math in high school. Yep. But as soon as I got into college, I had a, the second class I took, um, the college one in high school, uh, the professor said, oh, mathematicians, we don't do mathematics. If it, it, anything with a number larger than three, we don't touch it. Like, <laughs> and and you know, I think there are a lot of people who don't like numbers who need to hear that actually advanced mathematicians, they don't like numbers either. <laughs> that's, that, 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 that's, a, that's very, very interesting. So take that one step further and this idea that we are taught things in units and increments of the exact same length that we yeah. go to a school from exactly such and such a time 
to exactly such and such a time, five days a week, excluding Act 80 days and holidays and summer breaks. And you see some of the school districts are now moving toward um, breaks throughout the year instead of the two and a half months during the summer, they break it up more throughout the year. So you get natural yeah. spring bake, you get a break, you get a real end of the year break, that sort of thing, which I think is a better model personally. And uh, and now going be it now, the next step is now this gets uh, brought into the workplace where there's this expectation of folks who have no particular need to are herded into cube farms and told mm. that they have to somehow be their best and brilliant between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. Monday through Friday and be visible and answer your phone on the second ring and respond to all emails probably within 15 minutes and make sure to CC senior management in the correct order unless you would have meetings about meetings about the meetings about how to CC people and have this take up 25 years of your time. So oh, it's all when, such so, a waste so, so, and so, 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 silly. In my, so in my first few years as an entrepreneur, I dealt with, and this is because I didn't have really have my avatars nailed down of the type of clients I wanted to work with, the ones who would uh, email me or leave messages and then tap their watch and mm -hmm. attempt to grade me by how quickly I responded. I yeah. said, I said, that's really cute. Uh, I, I probably used other words. And then there, and then there was another one. Said, well, what are your office hours? <laughs> I don't. I don't have office hours. I, I, if, if you've paid me for us to do something, we set goals, we set goals, we set benchmarks, we set mm -hmm. milestones, we set deadlines. And if anything needs to pivot along the way, we're in communication, we, we, we get it done one way or the other. Uh, I mean, I mean, if, if you tell me, if you tell me we need something, I'll give you an example. Uh, we have one of our new podcast reach clients who's getting ready to graduate. And part of their project is to get their intro, outro, and commercials bumpers done for their mm -hmm. episode production. Uh, I told the client that we would have those ready in advance of a one-on-one -on -one I was having with the client on Friday. So that naturally means uh, that we delivered the drafts of the client at uh, my equivalent of about 11.30 p.m. Thursday night. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you, know, you, want, you want to know why? Because uh, I planned my entire week around being able to disappear from society for a few hours that Tuesday to come up with the themes, the schematics, the expectations, mm -hmm. and access art and such to give to the programmer so that they could give me the files back by Thursday. And then there was a little bit of time if we need to go back and forth on small edits. Yeah, yeah. That there that, that didn't happen anywhere within the hours of eight a.m. to five p.m. I assure you. Well, I think you know you mentioned um, asynchronous, and I took note of that. I think yeah. that you know I, I've been running a totally virtual business for many many years now, um, but I think what a lot of people don't understand about both working virtually remotely and basically most of digital marketing and digital communication except for live conversations like we're having now is it's asynchronous and that comes with uh -huh. some disadvantages but it also comes with a lot of advantages right yeah. like there's a lot you can keep a chain reaction going and work could be happening continuously 24 hours a day with no one person having to kill themselves. I mean, I, yeah. people are like, Oh, Sarah, you get so much done. You know, like you must, uh, I'm, I'm working on my three day work week. I'm going to be working from like 10 AM to like 2 PM kind of three days a week, you know, but my hours aren't set, but that's just kind right. of my basic goal. And I flex, I'm flexible. Sometimes I like working. So, you know, sometimes I work more cause it's fun. Sometimes I do, tasks that, you know, are low level tasks because they're fun and relaxing. Um, yeah. But, that, oh, finish your thought and then I have one for you. Yeah, no, go ahead. No, no, finish your thought. Um, you know, so it's, it's, well, that's one of the joys of being a, an entrepreneur, of being a business owner, but I think it can also be the joys of almost every team member in a company because people are happier and people are more productive when they have that kind of like, I'm doing this work for meaning, not to log an hour. Yeah, so what I wanted to bring up is, you mentioned doing small road tasks. Mm -hmm. Science shows 
that that helps to optimize your brain when you need to do deep work. So when I have something deep I need to do, like I have writing I need to do, or I have an immersive project I need to do, I budget time to, well, candidly goof off. <laughs> yeah. We call that brain time with my exact, clients. Exact, like, it, you need precisely, brain time. <laughs> precisely. So I, it's to the point where a few people who follow me f- fairly closely on social media, they say, oh, he's posting about all these theoretical things and he's all over people's threads, uh, jumping into debates and such. He must have a big deadline. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's gone to the point where uh, one buddy of mine will notice me doing this and then he'll DM me and say, all right, man, what you working on? Mm-hmm. <laughs> he knows, he knows. Yeah, yeah. right, yeah. <laughs> and, and, as far, and going back to my thing about how uh, our educational system forces us to agonize over the things we don't like and are not good or not good at, and then calls us lazy when we still can't achieve. Meanwhile, denies us the opportunity to enjoy the stuff that we can master without a lot of efforts. You mentioned earlier that it seems like, and I'm paraphrasing you, that folks look at, say, working in a nonprofit, and it's, there's supposed to be a struggle because we're supposed to be on a shoestring. And then you go into many corporate and team type situations, they say, well, this is supposed to be a challenge. We're supposed to run into roadblocks. Why? Yeah. I was, I mean- at, I was at a, I was at a seminar once and uh, I can't remember if it was actually his seminar or if he was the keynote or whatever, my friend, James Malinchak, and he explained the difference between working hard and working smart. Mm-hmm. So what he attempted to do is uh, we're in this conference room. I think there were 300 people in there. He tried to leave right in the middle of his speech. So <laughs> he explained, all right, I'm going to work hard to get out of here. He went up yeah. to the wall and started pounding it with his fists. <laughs> and surprisingly, he wasn't able to punch a hole in it. So then he said, oh, look, there's a door. I'm going to go work smart. Yeah. So he went yeah. up to the door and started pounding on the door with his fist. It's like, well, I'm working <laughs> smart. I know if I pound on this door, eventually it's going to give way. And then he reached down, put his yeah. hand on the doorknob, turned it, and opened the door. And he said, see, now that is working right. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So we talk about work hard versus work smart, but what about work right? And yeah, why does I, it and why does it have to be so hard? If you want to get out of the room, you find the nearest door that has a handle and turn it. And you yeah, you leave it. I think that yeah. it's like that culture of we've always done it that way is like the wall, right? That people are always running into. Uh-huh. Um and that comes from a command and control type environment, right? I do it because yeah. I was told to do it. And if you create a culture, environment, processes, whatever you want to call it where I've always done it that way is never a reason to do something because I want to get this result is the reason you do everything, then you don't have people pounding on the wall. You have people opening doors and all of a sudden, like this is how that kind of culture turns into having a lot more money is all of a sudden people just are walking through doors and opportunities are happening and it didn't take that much time and energy and everybody's happier and more relaxed and everybody has more brain time. Yeah. And then they, have, they come up with better solutions and it right. just like perpetuates in a very positive cycle. But people are terrified to make that change. Well, yeah, whenever whenever I hear that's how we've always done it, my usual response without any further fact finding is to say, yeah, and somehow despite that, you've managed to squeak through until now. Congratulations <laughs> on somehow making it. So with that, let's pivot here because you gave me a couple other things I want to make sure we definitely get in that are really intriguing to me. Uh, you mentioned to me in the green room the importance of having a superpower of being brutal in your priorities. This mm-hmm. is something I would love to spend at least five minutes sinking our teeth into. Take us, Take me away because I love this topic. Yeah, well, if you're going to set a goal and try to achieve it, Well, one is you've got to be really, you have to prioritize your goals, right? So you can't achieve all your goals at the same time. (laughs) You won't be, you have to actually pick the one, or if your company's big enough, the two or three goals that you want to achieve first. 
and you have to really focus on them and you have to free yourself from all of the other junk, let's call it. I call it crap, you know, stuff that, that really doesn't need to be there. Nobody said you had to answer all of your emails. Nobody said you have to, like people putting all these rules on themselves uh -huh. and then doing all this stuff following these rules, none of which help you achieve your goal. I think, you know, if you've ever worked with a coach and me as a coach, um, one of the first things I do with any client, especially if we're working one-on-one, -on -one, is tell them what to take off their plate. You can stop doing that. You can stop doing that. You can stop uh -huh. doing that. And sometimes like that's where I had that thought around being brutal about your priorities because the things you may take off your plate might be surprising and they might be scary. Like, oh, I'm going to stop doing that. Uh -huh. and, yes, you are going to stop doing this thing, you know, like straightening up your files or making sure, you know, I like organization, but things don't need to be perfectly neat, right? We just no, they need don't. Yeah. <laughs> so that we're not confused. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, a couple of things I think of. I remember this one time, I just, I tried an experiment. I just didn't answer my email for a week. And you know what's funny is that the things that actually mattered and yeah. the clients and the people who had made themselves important enough to me that anything affecting them could possibly affect me mm -hmm. had other ways of getting a hold of me if the, during that, if uh, waiting that week wasn't enough. Now, I didn't announce anybody that was letting my email go for a week. I just did it. Yeah. Because I wanted to see no. how this happened. The clients who actually had, you know, actually had a sense of, well, this is really important to me also recognized that they had the currency with me. They had other ways of getting my attention. Now, when I did this experiment, there was the one who uh, apparently I'd found out that uh, they had sent me an email that Tuesday with the word urgent in the subject line. <laughs> and when I, and, and when, I, and when I got, and when I saw it like six days later, I said, Oh, sorry, I was out. They said, they, they started with this whole thing of, uh, you know, I need to be uh, organized and, focused and how could I be so irresponsible? I said, if it mattered, you'd have picked up the goddamn phone. Yeah. There's you know, no such thing as an urgent email. <laughs> There's no such thing as an urgent text. And, and, and if you, and if you have any questions as to whether or not you could actually pick up a telephone and dial somebody and expect them to respond and be of help to you, if you're not sure that you've achieved that with them, you have it. So one of my earliest jobs when I was in college, I had a job as a hair salon receptionist. And I learned a very important business lesson from this recept from this salon owner. She said oh, to this me, should be Sarah, fine. Go ahead. Yeah. She said, you have to train your clients that they have to book an appointment, right? This yeah. is a high-end salon. Uh -huh. That even if we have availability same day or on a walk-in, you say no. You turn them yep. away. You book an appointment yep. for another day. Because if you start letting your clients think that they're going to come. Now, you'd think there would be no hair emergencies. But we were there were so supposed hair emergencies. I had a client call up. I need to get in today. It's an emergency. I have to go to a funeral and my roots are showing. <laughs> Like, that's not really an that's, emergency. That it's is also not, not an emergency. It's also right? not an emergency if you're going to be in somebody's wedding because you knew because unless they just got engaged the day before and they're eloping the day after tomorrow, you knew about it for a year. You knew about it. There yeah. are no salon emergencies, right? Yeah. Period. Yeah. The, o yeah the only example. Yeah. There are only two examples. One of which is is you're going to be in a wedding where the couple literally got engaged yesterday and they're eloping tomorrow. Then right. yeah, I could see that as being an emergency where if you, where if you can at least done, get it patched <laughs> up. Uh, the other is that the other is that for some is somehow you managed to literally set your hair on fire and you need it at least fixed up until it can grow back. <laughs> right. Those but are the only two things I can see as being air right. emergencies. Sorry, right. not sorry. So training your clients and the way I use this lesson many years later is that. I tell, you know, most of my clients are CEOs. They're like the prime leader in their organization. Uh -huh. And I like to tell them, listen, like 
you control the speed at which the conversation happens, right? Yes. If this conversation is truly important that to you for your priorities that it happens quickly, then by all means respond right away. But most incoming requests to you are not going to be your top priority. And uh -huh. if you and if you respond right away, you're setting a fast pace and it's going to be annoying because you don't want fast in your face if it's not a top priority. So don't respond immediately, right? Which is the opposite yeah. of we were just saying people are trained like you have to respond right away and here I am saying don't respond. You set the pace. If you want one communication a week, respond once a week. If you want yeah. one communication a day, respond once a day. You know, but you have to control that pace. Don't let yeah. that feeling of urgency when somebody emails you with a request or asking something set the pace. And exactly. Now, don't ignore people, but you can always no, write no, no. back saying, I got your email. I'll get back to you next week. And, <laughs> right. and, and, and you know, uh, some of my some of my my private consulting clients actually just asked me to just do that to uh, yeah. just say hey got it just so they know it didn't fall into the vortex of being gobbled up by the email gremlins right my clients um, know i respond to their emails that they've submitted by monday on tuesday yeah. well, sure, <laughs> so yeah. i don't know i yeah. don't have to tell them because i trained them all with it with with their response yeah. on tuesday Within a business day is standard turnaround, and and uh, people who pay me uh, a certain amount of money, which is lots, uh, mm -hmm. also know that if they uh, if they get on my Skype or they get on my social media DMs, I'll respond to that in timely fashion. Yeah, yeah. Because they've earned the currency with me to be able to enter my life at that level by giving me money, and it's yeah. the same with the people who I pay to render services for me. Yeah, I have that I have that privilege with them that others who don't pay them don't get. Yeah, I think somebody I forget who it was, was, you know, one of the most valuable things you can pay for is access to somebody yeah. who has expertise. Right. And yep. paying for that access is really valuable. A also lot of the my definition clients of celebrity. don't understand that. Right. Yep. <laughs> also, the definition of celebrity, uh, it's it's ac it's access. And I've met a fair number yeah. of celebrities. I've had uh, I've had friends actually really good friends who were top 40 recording artists and uh, the recurring theme of how I met them all is uh, buying a ticket to go to some event. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's, I mean, that's, it just, it's just a matter of access. And, and, and some of the folks back from where I grew up and everything's uh, like, there was this one time I met John Ratzenberger who played Cliff Clavin on Cheers. Mm -hmm. And I posted a picture of me with with John uh, the morning after I met him. It's like, whoa! How, how, how did you meet him? That's uh, amazing, boy, man! You're going places. I paid seventy five dollars to attend a dinner. He was the keynote speaker. That's right. You can and buy that, yourself and and and, 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 yeah, and I and I and I got to have a really nice conversation with him. I explained to him how I agree that Cliff Clavin's answer on Final Jeopardy was correct and he should have won because those three people had never been in this kitchen. And I also became the first person to ever tell him that Cliff Clavin inspired me. Nice. <laughs> he still I, he, he couldn't figure that one out even after I explained it to him. That's great. That's yeah, great. that's a, that's a story for another time. So I'm going to leave that loop open for our listeners. Maybe in a future episode, I'll cover that one. Uh, I but think here's you a, should. I yeah, think the whole topic of you know paying for access is way under discussed. That's I mean that that sounds mercenary, but it's really not. Uh, I mean, cause, I, mean cause I used to go to nonprofit galas to meet yeah. potential clients. Now, I don't think nonprofit galas are a good form of fundraising. So I kind of stopped doing it because yeah. like, I'm kind of perpetuating something that I actively tell people not to do. And it's kind of an awkward introduction to be like, I'm here to tell you to stop doing the thing <laughs> that you're doing. Yeah. Plus the pandemic made fewer galas and my clients are all over the country. But right. it was just straight up. I'm like, if I can pay 150 bucks to have a direct one-on-one -on -one experience with my target person who I want to sell to, I'm going to do that. <laughs> like, well, abs absolutely, absolutely. All right. So we've covered being ruthless with our brutal and our priorities. And in the time we have left, and we're unfortunately getting near the end, we might have to have you back in a few months to get into some more stuff because it's so much fun. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, 
But the next thing that you brought up that's really got me curious is you mentioned the chaos theory. And part of what we've been talking about here is the idea of looking at things less from command and control and more from a community standpoint. So when you got community and you've got people actually working out each other's boundaries, working out how to best be of service to each other, how to work effectively in asynchronous, asynchronous threads, you're going to get chaos. So chaos theory, how it applies in business. Oh, there's a couple things here. So I was early on very inspired um, by Margaret Wheatley, who wrote a book called uh, Le- it's called Leadership Leadership and the New Sciences. I had to look back yeah. <laughs> to see the book. Um, Leadership and the New Sciences. And she's the one who started using this term chaos. She's actually using terms from thermodynamics and chaos theory from science. Um, and applying it to businesses because basically you know the way science has learned to describe the way nature works well human beings are part of nature where you know a species and these same patterns emerge with us and the way we work and so she's the one who got me thinking about so when she talks about you know chaos theory so chaos isn't in science it's not total craziness but chaos is something that a part of they were looking at particles right so a chaotic particle is one that moves but you can't predict where it's going to be at any certain moment in time it doesn't follow a predictable pattern but the interesting thing about chaos theory and chaos science is they started studying particle movements supposedly chaotic particles over time and they found that patterns emerged it's just there were variations each time so while you couldn't predict the very next you know where any point thing would be at any given point in time there was a general kind of pattern that was going on over time yes and i think that's really important for us in business to understand and the way people work together whether it's community whether you call it an organization a business whatever a club um is that people do this right we operate and it's not important for our businesses we you know we're moving into the future we're trying new things we don't need to know the exact time and place we're going to be two years from now but we do need to know generally what kind of activities produce what kinds of results what kinds of patterns so that we can be kind of orbiting in that area um, so I thought that was a very interesting concept um, to think about it. And and later that led me to um, find Dave Snowden's work on the Kinevin framework. Are you familiar with this? Not a lot of people vaguely. are. Vaguely, yeah, vaguely. So Dave Snowden's a specialty on complexity, and he also has his own way of talking about how we deal with chaotic environments. And he describes... Um, he has the, so the Kinevin framework is like, if it's a very simple system, how to act and respond, if it's a complicated system, if it's a complex system, and if it's a chaotic system. And without going into the whole thing, because that's a topic for another day, he talks about whenever you're in a very chaotic type system where things are very unpredictable and what you do one day won't have the same result as what you do another day, he yeah. talks about you have to take this process of creating safe to fail experiments uh-huh. that have you know very little risk if they go wrong and because you've designed them that way on purpose and then just taking action and seeing what happens and then taking a little more action knowing that you're not going to create some like complicated system that you know you're not going to have some automated funnel but you're going to test and experiment and try things out and that's like where the most innovating innovation happens. That's where like things start to emerge and you start to discover things. And people are uncomfortable in that kind of area. They're not used to working in that dynamic situation, partly, right, because of the school problem we keep coming back to, right? Maybe this is wrong with the public school system. I got got another one about the school system. Um, A client of mine, uh, Ross Jeffries, he uh, has a business where he teaches men how to meet, mate, and date with women. Uh So one of the biggest requests he gets is they want to know where they can find the collection of all his language patterns, like all the pickup lines, the uh, the conversational themes, and what have you, so they could memorize them word for word. 
-hmm. he eventually reluctantly allowed for a curated collection of them to be sold and Mm -hmm. because he was responding to public demand and the fact that a lot of people were willing to give him money for it and he and he put within the language of it that the caveat was is there was no guarantee on this because simply knowing the words is not enough understanding tonality understanding vibe and most of all understanding calibration Mm -hmm. is what makes this stuff work or doesn't for a very simple reason uh you get somebody who memorizes a pickup line and then enters a, a, a dynamic or conversation with somebody where they're trying to get to know them it's predicated on the idea that the person you're using this line with or doing this opener with is going to have the response you want them to have. Right, right. It it leaves out that that other person is a chaotic human being full of wild chemicals that sees the world through his or her own truth based on their own experiences. And just because that pickup line you used has worked the past five times doesn't mean you ain't going to get slapped this time or vice versa. That's right. So, so that's, it's a so good that's example. I love that because there's so yeah. much going on in that moment, like in a hu- live human interaction, they they don't they aren't predictable, <laughs> and yeah. you have to become a true expert in perceiving all the nuances before you can get any sort of predictable result. Yeah, which is which is why it was with great reluctance that he even sold that collection, and he curated very carefully a few people bought it said but i remember you taught this pattern at uh, the the uh los alamos seminar in 1997 it's not there so this isn't really a language pattern collection well that was 1997 uh we're in 2022 Uh, a lot of things have changed when it comes to everything including the whole process of meeting people i think you and i are both uh just old enough to remember that if one of us had met a, a dating partner or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a novio or a novia off the internet, that we would tell a cover story to our family and friends because we didn't want to be seen as those weirdos who were meeting people online. Yeah, that was a, now, weird, a weird yeah, thing. That, that, <laughs> that, yeah, I remember those days. And now we've gotten to the point where telling them that you met them in the produce, produce section at the grocery store it's like, what? whoa, <laughs> what? Is that is that kind of creepy to just go up to somebody and have a conversation with them in a grocery store? <laughs> That's how much it shifted within our lifetimes. It's shifted a it may, lot. It may shift again. It, it probably will. I mean, yeah. I think, you know, I've done a lot of work in marketing, obviously. And when I talk about like, marketing it's like human psychology plus whatever communication flavor is the flavor of today like whatever the context of that is but the human psychology piece doesn't really change but the how we go about communicating has changed a lot and it's continuing to change um yeah and people are finding you know the amount that they want this kind of asynchronous communication and the amount that they don't right because we don't want to always be asynchronous or we'll feel quite disconnected. Um, but it's good to also take advantage of the things that being asynchronous as an, I'm an introvert. And so I love asynchronous. Oh yes. Yes. Right? yes, so, yes. <laughs> I'm like, this is awesome. <laughs> My mom's also an introvert. And when the pandemic uh-huh. first started, she's like, I'll be fine as long as it doesn't go much past Thanksgiving, right? That was already like nine months into the future. Everybody else is like freaking out. Like, is it going to be a month or two? Of course, it lasted more than one Thanksgiving, unfortunately. But, you know, that's a a true introvert. She's like, I'll be fine staying at home for at least nine months. (laughs) No problem. (laughs) Um, Well, I I have there are different people who have different opinions about uh, whether there should have been any restrictions at all. And we're not a political podcast, so I'm not going to get into that, but I will, but I will confess. And to this day that I duck out of a lot of invitations by saying, hey, you know, the bug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. So I think yeah. um, if we can take some of what we've shared today and uh, we can, 
focus it properly, we can maximize impact, reduce that overwhelm, and feel less burned out. So seeing as we are at the top of the hour, uh, we kind of do have to cap it off. And I know that you have an invitation for our listeners. It's real simple. To visit your website at www.pivotground.com. That's www.pivotground.com. And you can discover so much about the impact method. There are some great, there are some great resources there. Uh, I'm going to have to check out a few of those myself. They seem pretty interesting to me. And with that, Sarah Olivieri, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and believe me, an education. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure and a fun journey of a conversation. I love what you said about uh, mastermind conversations, right? And the yes. truth of so much business is that it's messy and all over the place. Uh, yes. It's not, you know, everybody wants orderly, but that's not really how it goes. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.